1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And you can be seated. All right, so we are diving into some deep water this morning as we are tackling two issues that are very serious and they are also very much connected together. The, the first issue is the issue of sexual immorality and especially sexual immorality in the church. And the second issue is of what is usually called church discipline. And the two are brought together in this chapter uh, this morning as things have kind of secretly spiraled out of control at the the church of Corinth. And before we really dive in here, I, j- I just want to front load my application for you now. And it is that you need to do everything in your power to guard yourself against sexual immorality of all kinds. Every single person in here, everything in your power, sexual immorality really is the silent cancer that grows in a church. And, and this is not just our church, this is every church. It has the ability to do so much damage. And I say it's the silent cancer because oftentimes no one knows it, no one sees it, nobody's talking about it, and it just sort of grows silently and quietly until it rears its ugly head, and by the time it does, it is an absolute mess. And there's really nothing left to do, but there is devastation. And and you guys know that we have worshipped side by side in the the small three and a half years that we've been in a church— we have worshipped side by side with people who have gone off, people, multiple people who have gone off into a life of sexual immorality. They have abandoned Jesus for this sin of immoral sex. And we've seen the devastation. Can I just tell you some hard truth? We will probably see it again. This is just the reality of, of life in the church. This is an age-old temptation And how do I know that? Because the church has been battling sexual immorality for 2,000 years. 
since the very beginning. In fact, turn over to Revelation chapter 2 for a minute. You remember in Revelation 2 and Revelation chapter 3, the Lord Jesus specifically writes these really short letters to seven different churches in Asia Minor, what we would call modern-day Turkey. Two of these seven churches are having problems with sexual immorality. Two of them. So take a look down in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. We'll start in verse 11. Again, this is the Lord Jesus speaking to these churches. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put, stumble, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and to practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't know what that is, by the way. He says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Pergamum was apparently a hotbed for persecution. It was, it was, it was a pagan environment through and through. He says that's where Satan's throne is. I mean, this is like modern day Sodom and Gomorrah. This is like, this is, Las Vegas or whatever that Amsterdam over in over in Europe. I mean, this is this is disgusting. And it was so bad. The persecution was so bad that apparently Antipas had even died. They were killing people who were Christians there. And Jesus goes, you know what? You're holding fast to the faith, but you've got one big problem. You've got people in there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Balaam, if you remember back in the book of Numbers, he was a prophet and the pagan king Balak had hired him to, to prophesy cursing on Israel. You remember this? And he tried to curse Israel, but he couldn't. God kept putting in him a blessing for Israel, and all he could do was bless Israel. And so he got frustrated, and he's like, well, you really want to undermine Israel? Here's what you do. Go put prostitutes down by the waterhole, and you will corrupt all Israel by that. And that's exactly what happened. And through prostitution... He led all of Israel astray. Jesus says, you've got people in there who are giving shade to people who are going to prostitutes in your church. That's a problem. And then what I think is just scary, if you don't take care of this, I will come to war with you. Those are fighting words, literally. Jesus will come after the church who does not take care of sexual immorality inside the church. It's that dire that Jesus says that. And it says basically the same thing again in the church of Thyatira, just a few verses down, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Those are judgment symbols imported from the Old Testament. Jesus is judging his church. 
Peter says, judgment begins at the house of the Lord. I know your works, he says, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. By the way, those two things were, were commonly intertwined. Idol worship at the, at the pagan temple often incru- included what was called cult prostitution. You go to the, 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 the pagan temple and you'd get your meat and you'd also, you'd also see a prostitute. And that was your act of worship at a pagan temple. Verse 21, he says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father." And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He uses the the wife of King Ahab, Jezebel, as an example. If you remember, Jezebel basically made Baal worship great again in Israel. That was her role. She brought in idolatry, and part of part of pagan idolatry has always been cult prostitution. Their hand in glove all throughout the Bible and really all throughout the, the, the history of the world. And it spread through Israel. And this sexual immorality was rampant in Rome as well. Anywhere you went in Rome, idolatry was incorporated into social life. You wanted to go to the temple to get meat? And we'll talk about meat a little bit later in 1 Corinthians. But, but just going to get a slab of meat to eat. Idolatry was often involved in it, and therefore sexual immorality was involved in it. And there were apparently some people in the church who were tolerating this cultural compromise in Thyatira. And so just to get to the point, if you are struggling with sexual immorality, I plead with you on behalf of the Lord Jesus, put it to death. Put it to death. Seek help, seek counsel, seek whatever you need to do. Get rid of your phone, get rid of your computer, whatever it is. You need to put it to death. It will lead you astray. It will take you places you do not want to go. We see this all throughout the Bible. We see this specifically in church history. We see it here very clearly here. God said in Genesis 4 to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must what? You must rule over it. You must conquer it through the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you guys. We are no longer slaves of sin. It does not rule over us. We have the spirit of the living God inside us, and we can, by his grace, put sin to death. And I urge you all the more to put these things to death, to put them out of your life. 
Jesus says, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, cut off your foot. That's all hyperbole, of course. But do whatever you have to do to get this out of your life. And just like when we celebrated the Lord's Supper, understand that God's grace is there to forgive you and to restore you to right fellowship. You can rule over it. You can slay it. And I just want to be very practical here, especially with warm weather coming. Men, guard your hearts and guard your eyes. Guard your hearts, guard your eyes. Job 31, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Stop looking at little little things jogging down the road. Guard your eyes, guard your hearts. And ladies, I want to encourage you all the more to dress in modesty and helpfulness. I know you can't control where men put their eyes, but you can control how helpful you are dressed. And I would urge you all the more to dress in modesty. If you're not sure what that means, talk with a godly man you trust. Please. And men, same thing. We know you're strong. We don't need to see your manly six-pack or your big bulging biceps. It's all right. We know you're big. It's okay. Why are you guys laughing down here? Why am I going on about this? Because the problem in Corinth was just that. 1 Corinthians 5, the the occasion for this church discipline, you can turn back there, is sexual immorality. That's that's the occasion. And And sexual immorality usually does not happen overnight. It's a long series of compromises that eventually result in outright and open sin. It starts with looking. It starts with talking. It starts with small, subtle sneakiness stuff. And then it is full-blown. And so, so we need to stop it early on. But check out this situation that's going on. This is a crazy situation. Verses 1 and 2 in First Corinthians 5. He says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, even on unbelievers. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. You're proud of this. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And, and so this is, this is crazy. In the Corinthian church, there is actually a situation where a guy is sleeping with his stepmom. That's, that's what's going on. And it doesn't seem to be his biological mother because Paul seems to make a specific distinction with the language that he uses. It doesn't say he has his mother. It says he has his father's wife. So it's not directly incestuous, but it still is somewhat incestuous because this is likely his father's second wife. She's still part of the family. And this is actually something that was directly talked about in the Old Testament. The Old Testament forbade this explicitly. You can write these two verses down. Leviticus 18.8 He says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. To uncover her nakedness would be to to sleep with her. That's, That's what it is. He says, why? Because it is your father's nakedness. It that that's your father's. Deuteronomy 27 20. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife, because he has uncovered his father's nakedness, and all the people shall say, Amen. This is explicitly outlawed by God. And there's a sense in which I think Moses is even kind of um, putting putting a, a little bit of a logical connection here. It, if a married man is one flesh with his wife and you're sleeping with his wife, you're kind of sleeping with your dad. And you go, ew. You guys, that should be our reaction anyway to what's going on. He wants to have the ew factor in there. Sin is gross. 
It's wrong. And he's trying to put that together. He's trying to give us a, an ooh fact. A lot of times, a lot of times what happens with sin is, is we, we talk about it in ways where, where the ooh factor is gone. Right? It's, it's the proverbial, you know, we don't call it adultery anymore. We call it an affair or a fling or, or something. Like we, we just make it sound almost kind of nice and pleasant and that sort of thing. And our world does this too. It talks about sin in jokes so that we're laughing at it. I think I've told you guys this before. Jody and I were, were first married. We watched the, the TV show Friends a lot. It is amazing how much the punchline to jokes are sinful. And you are, you are laughing at sinfulness. That's the whole point. That's how our culture helps us to conform to its sinful desires, is through jokes, through levity. The crazy thing here is even the pagans, even unbelievers know that what's going on between this supposedly Christian man and this supposedly Christian woman is wrong. He says this is not even tolerated among the pagans. Isn't that crazy? He is shaming them with the Roman culture who when they go to the grocery store, there are prostitutes at the grocery store. He's like, even those people know that what you're doing is wrong. That's how bad this is. And you guys are arrogant about it. This is pretty wicked, what's going down in here. It's pretty bad when pagan morality is better than what's going on in the church. But they think it's great, he says, and you are arrogant. The idea is, man, look how gracious we're being. Look how much the mercy of Jesus covers this sin. Like, it's good, they're invited, and we're just being accepting and loving. We wouldn't want to disassociate with them. We're so tolerant. We, we practice forgiveness at First Baptist Corinth. No, they actually practice sin. He says, you shouldn't be arrogant and proud about this. You should be mourning about this. You should be sad that this is, that this is going on. And this is bad on an epic level. By the way, the church was hiding that this was going on from Paul. Paul found out about this situation through the back door. That's why he says it is actually reported. The church wasn't telling Paul that this was going on. Whoever delivered the letter from Corinth to Paul, whoever that messenger was, he was like, hey, by the way, uh, you need to know there's a couple of things going on. Number one, everybody's arguing over who their favorite leader is. That's, that's chapters one through four. Remember, he says it, it's reported. They're not telling him that they're all dividing over their favorite leader. And they're not telling him, by the way, there's some dude sleeping with a stepmom. Forgot to leave that out of the letter. I'm sure it was just an oversight. Yeah, not so. No, they're hiding it from them. That's the treachery that's that's going on. The church was hiding sexual immorality. Does that sound familiar? That goes on all the time in our culture. Where there's sexual abuse or sexual immorality or whatever, it's covered up, it's hidden, nobody wants to talk about it, nobody wants to deal with it until it just explodes and then you're just left with this devastation. So what's Paul's solution? Verse 2. Last sentence. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul's solution is to remove the person. They are no longer welcome at the local church. They are no longer welcome for fellowship or to be a part of the lives of those who are in the church. They are cut off. And we'll talk about more than, of that in a minute. But first, let me, let's turn back to Matthew 18 for just a minute. 
In Matthew 18, we have what are commonly called the four steps of of church discipline. What do we do as Christians when we find somebody who seems to be in open sin? What, What do we do? Well, thankfully, the Lord Jesus has actually given us sort of a roadmap. It's just it's four simple steps. And, and something you need to understand, you guys, because we have personally done this as a church and we've dealt with this, there are precious few churches in America that actually practice this, that actually go through the steps of church discipline. I, I've only known two other churches that do that prior, prior to, to moving up here. There are very, very few. They, they might deal with sin in different ways, but never according to these steps, never according to these principles. A lot of issues are swept under the rug or they're dealt with behind closed doors, but Jesus could not have been more clear exactly how we deal with sin when we see it in the body of Christ. So chapter 18 of Matthew, verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he agrees with you, great. All done. That's step one. Step two, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this is a a confrontation. He didn't repent from the first one. We're going to take a couple of witnesses, kind of figure out what's going on in the situation. Maybe there's some guilt on both parties. See what happens. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, the whole body. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, because that would have been step three, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's step four. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For whether... Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so this is the step-by-step process. And that little thing at the end is is basically, hey, if you've got credible witnesses to this sin, trust the witnesses. Trust them so much so that those witnesses, if Jesus were there, he would agree with the witnesses. So you need credible witnesses. You need godly witnesses. And I would encourage, if there's a situation in your life, that you would would get an elder um, to help walk you through that process. Just so you understand, though, the goal here is not to kick people out. You know what the goal is? It's to win them back. It's their repentance, that they would come back to godly living, that they would come back to righteousness. At every point in this, in these steps, the goal is to restore them afresh to the Lord first, but also to the fellowship. That is the goal. The goal is not kicking people out. The goal is not shunning anybody. The goal is actually righteous living where people are restored back. And that's, that's the whole point. It's, it's that people would live a life of purity. I remember talk, listening to a, uh, an interview of a, a Presbyterian pastor guy, and he was talking about church discipline and their church membership thing. And there was this, there was this wealthy doctor guy, and, uh, and uh, he was in the class, and they were talking about church discipline. And he's like, so you're telling me if, uh, if I'm caught up in sin, you'll actually kick me out of your church? And the guy's like, well, he gives a lot. <laughs> He's like, yeah, that's right. And the guy thought, huh, I like that. You're actually going to hold people accountable to the righteousness you call them to. It was the first time he had ever seen that in a church. That's how it ought to be. That shouldn't be the aberration. That should be the norm. 
That should be going on. And you guys, part of it is to keep all of us accountable. Not that we're all like the secret police and Gestapo. and you know, It's not that. It's that I have a loving family who is committed to my righteousness and my standing before the Lord. And they will go through this process in love and in gentleness and in patience with me if ever I am caught up in sin. This is what Jesus calls us to do. He says if, if they don't repent, treat them like a tax collector. Well, what does that mean? Well, tax collectors were not a part of the people of God. They might have pretended to be part of the people of God, but they weren't. Tax collectors were the worst. They were Jewish people who had sold out to Rome, and they were actually extorting other Jews in Israel. So they had the Jewish name tag. They said, you know, yeah, I'm part of the people of God, but they were actually pagans in their practice. That's how we treat people who name the name of Jesus, and yet they're caught up in unrepentant sin. So this is the, 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 the steps that we go through. So turn back over to 1 Corinthians 5, and actually where we find ourselves is actually in step 4. You say, well, how did they get to step 4? Well, they got to step 4 because the whole church already knew about it. The, the, the sin was well known to everybody. So there's no sense in going step 1, step 2, step 3. The whole church knows, and the whole church is arrogant. And Paul's saying the, the problem isn't that nobody knows, everybody knows. The problem is that you're arrogant about it, and rather you should mourn and, and dismiss this guy. And he says this in various ways, just so that we don't miss this. So take a look at the end of, of verse 2 in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then look down in verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. More on that in a minute. Look down in verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Look down at verses 9 through 11. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Don't even associate with them. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, since then you would need to go out to the world. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of of all of those sins. And then we see again in verse 13, God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Purge means to get out. What does all this mean? As, as plainly as possible, it means that the person who has been, been gone into step four of church discipline does not step foot inside the church. They are not welcome in fellowship at all. They don't get invited to church activities. Paul says you don't even eat with such a one. You don't go get coffee with them. You don't hang with them. You're not close anymore. There's there's a removal that has happened from, from the life of the church. And by the way, this is in the active voice. This is not, well, I guess they kind of fell off the face of the earth, so oh well. No, they need to know proactively, listen, you are no longer considered a brother by our church body because your sin has separated you from us. You need to know this. This is a proactive approach. And you guys, this is hard. This is so, so hard. And it's hard because it's usually someone we all love dearly. It's probably a family member or a close friend of somebody. This is, this is the reality of this. This is not easy to do. 
but we need to know or we need to know that what Jesus expects and what Paul expects is active removal. You remember Jesus said in John 15 too, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, what does he do? He chops it off and takes it away. Yeah, it's gone. It's the same word. They are cut off. That's exactly the word that's used here. But this is the earnestness of Paul. Look at verse 3. He says, For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does that all mean? Remember that Paul is is likely hundreds of miles away, so he can't just hop on an airplane, hop on a Zoom meeting, you know, and, and conference with the church, that kind of thing. So he says, look, I'm with you in spirit. There's, there, I, I think what he's saying is there's a sense in which we are all unified supernaturally, spiritually to Jesus, and so there's a sense in which his spirit is with them as they are doing that, as if they needed encouragement. But he's like, I'm with you when you do this. If I were there, this is what would be going down. And so I'm telling you to do this and know that in as much as I'm unified to Christ and Christ is unified to you, I'm with you there. Do this hard, hard thing. I am present with you in the power of Jesus. Jesus's power is there. We read that in Matthew, where two or three are gathered. I am there with you. That's talking about church discipline. It's not talking about prayer meeting. It's talking about church discipline. I'm there with you. Why? Because you want to know that you know that Jesus is there with you when you are doing the hardest thing you ever have to do in the church, which is to to figure out that someone is bound up in sin. Heaven already knows that, and we've just found that out. And we have to remove them. You want to know that Jesus is there. He promises that he is. But as an apostle of Jesus, Paul has rendered his judgment. If he were there, that guy would be out. He would be removed immediately. And so he gives specific instructions. The next time you are assembled together, write a secret letter in a back room and mail it to him. No, he doesn't say that. No, when you are present, you pronounce judgment on this one. You let the church know. You've already let the church know. The church here already knows. But if you've gone through step three, the church was already aware of the sin because they've already been calling on them to repent. No, you let the church know. And you deliver this man to Satan. What does that mean? Well, it's just another synonym for removing him from the church. It's not some sort of weird spiritual witchcraft thing. What you need to understand, you guys, is is when we gather here every Sunday, what happens here is precious, and it is very much spiritual, and it is very much supernatural. It might be ho-hum, sing some songs, take the Lord's Supper, listen to the sermon, you know, kind of do our church thing, but really what the Spirit is doing in the hearts and lives of every single one of you is a spiritual, supernatural thing that occurs. There is a grace that covers this place when we gather together as the body of Christ week in, week out, whether you know it or not. It's like eating fruits and vegetables. You can't taste the vitamins that you're getting in. You just either like the sweetness of the banana or you hate the the bitterness of the carrots, but you're getting nutrients. Maybe you like the sermon. Maybe you don't. Maybe you like the songs. Maybe you don't, but you are getting spiritual uplifting from the Holy Spirit through his word every weekend. When you come and gather together, that is happening. 
outside of these walls or outside of the gathering, there's nothing sacred about these walls, outside of the gathering together is Satan's domain. In here is the spirit working and operating and encouraging and loving and convicting and sanctifying. Out there is Satan's domain. So when someone is removed from the fellowship, it's as though you are no longer under the umbrella of the covering of the Holy Spirit. You are in Satan's domain. So that's why he says, deliver him over to Satan. You are outside there. You are out in Satan's domain now. And we have delivered you out to him. Paul uses that word over and over again for removing false teachers. They have been handed over to Satan. I think Hymenaeus and Alexander, he says, have been handed over to Satan. They've been excommunicated from the church. They've been removed from the precious grace that happens here when we gather week in and week out, doing what seems to be ho-hum stuff sometimes, but this is true work of the Holy Spirit. You deliver this man to Satan. And he gives us several reasons why removing sinful persons needs to happen. The first reason is that sin has a tendency to spread. Sin has a tendency to spread. Look at verses 6 through 8. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So a little leaven leavens the whole lump. When you put a little bit of yeast in a batch of dough and you knead it, what happens? Well, it spreads through the whole dough and the whole, the whole batch of dough rises. He says that's what happens with sin. What happens when you've got someone in blatant, open, unrepentant sin in the church? It never just stays with them. People who are in unrepentant sin tend to recruit. They just do. You read through the Proverbs and you see Solomon's admonition over and over. My son, if sinners entice you. Well, why would sinners entice me? Because that's what sinners do. Misery loves company. True. Sinners love company. Also true. They want people to join them. They want collective darkness. That's what they want. And also, if... If there's sin going on in a church and everybody knows it and nobody's doing anything about it, it's like, well, if they're doing that, why don't I do this? They're not doing anything about that. They won't do. And all of a sudden, we've got moral compromise all over the place. The leaven spreads. And that's what he's saying happens. Paul takes this illustration of removing the leaven It's a bigger illustration of the Passover, of course. You remember the week leading up to the Passover in Judaism, they would actually clean out their entire house of of leaven. And the idea was when they were in in Egypt, they had to clean out all the the leaven because they they could be gone at any moment. And they just had to be ready. They couldn't wait for the dough to rise. And so they, they just had to be in waiting. And so they cleaned out the leaven. Well, God then used the, this, this idea of leaven as, as sort of a, uh, an illustration of sin. And you see that throughout much of the Bible. And he says, well, the, the Passover lamb in, in Egypt was, was really just a picture of Jesus. He's our true Passover lamb. He has been sacrificed. And the leaven you need to clean out is not yeast in your cupboards. It's actually sin in your heart and in your life. That's what you need to clean out. And since the true Passover lamb has been sacrificed, then we truly need to cleanse our hearts of sin and celebrate Jesus with sincerity and truth. And so we are a living, breathing drama of the Exodus when we remove sinful people from among us. 
sin spreads. It always spreads. And by the way, I've, I've heard some weird things, even from some good guys who say, well, once you do step four and you say, well, they're no longer in the faith, then actually you can welcome them back in the assembly because now everybody knows that they are, that they are an unbeliever. Everybody knows this. And so where do they need to be? They need to be in here, hearing the gospel. And, and I look at these words and I'm like, you, how could you say it any differently that you need to remove? There's, there's no other language that you could possibly do justice. It doesn't mean to remove them. Cut out, remove, hand over, do not associate, do not go near, do not even eat with such a one. All of those things right here. So it's not like we go step four and they're like, oh, hey, there's, you know, Joe again or whoever. No, no, no. No, they're, they're outside. Because the problem is, is, is he says, whoever bears the name brother, they still have the badge of Christianity on. They're still claiming Jesus. They're still claiming that they follow the Lord. And we're going, no, you don't because of your life. I mean, just imagine you, you moved into a house and, and in the basement there was like this rock and you're like, well, what is this rock? It's really weird looking. And you got out like one of those little Geiger meters and you realized, oh, this rock is radioactive. Okay, well, now we know that it's radioactive. So we'll just keep it there. And, and we'll just kind of avoid it a little bit and it'll be awkward. No, you would get the hazmat guys and you would get the rock out of your house. That's what he's saying with the unrepentant sinner. You, you, don't, just, you don't just bring it back in. No, it's, it's poison. It's leaven. It's cancer in the church. Paul then says this, this applies specifically to those who profess faith in Jesus. It does not apply to the world. And we need to have a big distinction here. This is very important. Verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. He's like, I'm not talking about unbelievers. Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. You guys have neighbors or people you work with or family who are sexually immoral or greedy or idolaters? They don't name the name of Jesus? You need to associate with them. You need to be in their lives. Why? Because they need the gospel. Who's he talking about? Verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. They are self-identifying as a Christian in your assembly. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, with unbelievers? It is not those. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So again, we remove them. We don't even associate with them. There's no close connection. If they're in your house, it's a little bit of a different story. And obviously there's going to be some, some situations that you got to deal with. But for the most part, we stay away. We, we've tried. We've gone through those three steps of association, right? We, we didn't get rid of them. That wasn't our first you know, gut instinct. No, we did everything we possibly could to, to urge them to repent and to come back to faithfulness in Jesus. We've, we've, we've let them in and we've had coffee and we've eaten and we pleaded and prayed and, and, and now that time is over. That time is over. And I think this list of sins here isn't, isn't exhaustive, but I think it helps us understand it's not just sexual immorality. It's all kinds of sin. It could be greed. 
It could be somebody who's a reviler, somebody who just, they just have a, a mouth where all they do is badmouth people. They're subject to church discipline as well, or a swindler, somebody who takes, this, takes financial advantage of people. They're out too. Or an idolater, somebody who hits here but also goes to the Buddhist temple. There's all kinds of sins that this applies to. There's, there's nothing that's, that's off the table. I think that's this list. It's, it's, it's just a, a variety of sins. But these are people who have the proverbial Jesus shirt on. They claim Christ. They claim to be walking in faith, and yet their lives say otherwise. And why them? Because they're bringing a bad name on Christ. The world loves Christian hypocrites, you guys. They love Christian hypocrites. And they love to be able to slander Christians. I remember uh, when Jody and I were dating, actually. I was, I was uh, driving to a job with a guy, and he was a new guy, and we were chatting and, and just kind of telling each other's life stories. You know, I get to get to know people. And, uh, and I told him I went to Bible college, and one day I'd like to be a pastor. And he goes, oh, Mr. Preacher Man, are you, uh, you living with your girlfriend? He was just looking for hypocrisy. And I said no, and he was shocked that I wasn't living with my girlfriend. But he was looking for hypocrisy. The world is looking for hypocrisy. All those fallen pastors, all of those Christian hypocrites, the world loves that. They eat that up because it somehow undermines in their mind the legitimacy of Jesus being Lord. It doesn't actually undermine the legitimacy of him being Lord. He promised hypocrites would come. He said that that would happen. But in their mind, it does. Because they're like, well, if somebody's going to name the name of Jesus and just go do that, and you guys don't do anything about it, then the whole thing's a sham. Well, if you don't do anything about it, the whole thing is a sham, actually. You have to do something about it. So we put out those who name the name of Jesus. We don't put out those who don't name the name of Jesus. I've got all kinds of pagan neighbors. And I love hanging out with them. You know what Jesus was called? He was called a friend of what? Sinners. You know what we should be called? Friends of sinners. And we should wear that badge with pride. That we go to sinners. It's not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. If we had to go away from all sinners, we couldn't even operate in the world. That's what Paul says here. But for the most part, we go to them. And that's why Paul says this in verses 12 and 13. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. We don't judge unbelievers. We, we can call sin, sin. We can call them to that. But we don't avoid them because of that sin. That's not what, that's not what we're called to do. God's going to judge them. He'll take care of that. But for us, this assembly is who we are primarily concerned about. Paul says we judge those inside the church. Now, that doesn't mean we have a judgy culture. It doesn't mean we go and nitpick everybody's thing, right? This is, this is open, flagrant, obvious, unrepentant sin. And it means we go through this process. Paul then uses this phrase, purge the evil person from among you, in verse 13. Now, this would have been like the mic drop moment in this letter. Because they would have known their Old Testament if you look up that phrase in the Old Testament, purge the evil person from among you, you know what it meant? It meant to stone someone to death with stones. It meant to kill them. That's what it meant. Now, Paul doesn't mean it 
to kill people. But he means the gravity. Listen to this. Jot this down. Deuteronomy 13, verses 4 and 5. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and rendered you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. How do you do it? You kill them. You put them to death. Judges chapter 20, verse 13. And there's all kinds of verses that are like this. This is just two. Judges 20, 13. Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and thereby purge the evil from Israel. Now, just to be very clear, we're not putting anybody to death over sin, and we certainly don't harm them. Maybe we want to harm them, but we don't. That's on God. God takes the vengeance. Why does Paul say this? He wants us to understand the gravity of the situation. Do you guys understand life and death are not on the line here? It's much more serious than life and death. It is eternal life and eternal death that is on the line in how we deal with unrepentant sin. It's heaven or hell. Eternity weighs in the balance literally for how we walk through with somebody who is in unrepentant sin. I skipped this part intentionally, but it's important. Look at verse 5. Why do we do this? He says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that, here's why, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Why do we do all this? Why do we put someone out? Why do we hand someone over to Satan? Why do we not eat with such a one? Why do we remove them from the assembly so that they will hit rock bottom? That maybe their flesh is destroyed, but you know what? On the last day, they turn to Jesus in faith and their soul is saved. That's our heart in all of this. It's not judgment. It's not hatred. It's not spitefulness. It's not vengeance. It's actually evangelism to the wayward sinner who knows the gospel but hasn't walked in the gospel. The gospel is guarded and it's upheld when we are doing this very hard thing in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, very hard passage, very difficult to live out. Lord, may you give us purity in our own hearts and minds and souls. May we not be wayward and especially wayward in the area of sexual immorality May you forgive us when we fail in that way. May you guard up our way, hedge up our way, that you would keep us far from that. For any here that might be struggling with that, I pray that you would remind them afresh of the grace that they have in Christ and the grace they have through your spirit to walk in newness of life, that they would put that to death. Lord, may we be a church that is pure and loving. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.